From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Ruth Weinstock is the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate, and she's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about diabetes. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weinstock. Is the incidence of type 2 diabetes in adolescents and youth still a concern? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a huge concern. Absolutely. Because I know we've talked in recent years about sort of they, they've called it an epidemic um, tied to obesity. Is that so still? So type 2 diabetes has, uh, is extremely common in adults. And it used to only occur in adults over the age of 40, but now we have found that it is diagnosed younger and younger, including as young as 10 or even 8-year-olds, which is of great concern. So what is life like now for someone, an adolescent, who's diagnosed with type 2 diabetes today versus 10 or 20 years ago? Well, 10 or 20 years ago, it was almost unheard of. Uh, And there was really not much known about whether type 2 diabetes in youth was different from type 2 diabetes in adults. So fortunately, the National Institutes of Health decided to fund a study that we were um, privileged to be part of, one of 12 centers across the country, uh, looking at type 2 diabetes in youth, youth onset, uh, and comparing it to adults. And what we found was unfortunate. Um, First of all, some of the medications that work well in adults don't work as well in, in some children who develop type 2 diabetes. And the most alarming thing that we found is that they appear to be developing complications at an accelerated rate. So at a shorter duration of diabetes, they're getting some of the dreaded complications, uh, meaning it's affecting their eyesight, their kidney function, uh, their nerve function, and even uh, some heart disease. So that really um, uh, is of great concern and puts pressure not only to find better treatments for youth with type 2 diabetes, but also to try to figure out ways to prevent it. Well, that sounds a little uh, alarming, really. Does that mean it sounds like the disease is more aggressive in children? Yeah, so it appears in about half of the children it is uh, more aggressive. Wow, interesting. Is there speculation about why that is? So um, there is some speculation. It's all hypotheses. We don't have the answers. But, for example, when... uh, Uh, children go through puberty, there are a lot of hormonal changes, and those hormonal changes may be contributing to uh, some of the damage that's done and the difficulty controlling their blood sugars when they go through the teenage years. And then there are some psychosocial issues in teenagers um, and issues uh, related to adherence to medical advice and medication uh, taking that also probably plays a role. But it's probably heterogeneous, probably a number of factors. Okay. And you talked about it being important to come up with preventives. Absolutely. Um, And one of the things that we think uh, uh, could help a lot of youth is a healthy lifestyle. Um, uh, The youth in the study who developed type 2 diabetes were all overweight or obese. If that could be prevented, if if children were more active, if um, they could maintain a healthy weight and not gain weight at an early age, uh, we believe that that would be helpful. Okay. Well, I wanted you to tell us about a study that the Joslin Diabetes Center was involved in called the Today Study. Yep. So that's Um, the study. Yeah. 
So what did that look at? So uh, initially it looked at uh, comparing different treatment modalities for type 2 diabetes in uh, children who developed type 2 diabetes within the past couple of years uh, and um, were between the ages of 10 and 17. Um, and that's where we found that, for example, the drug metformin, which works very well in many adults, does not work as well in at least half of these children. Now, the study wasn't designed to try to figure out why. No, it was to look at drugs that was, have been successful in adults and to see how well they worked in children. Um, that part of the study ended a few years ago, but we have been continuing to follow these children in terms of complication rates. And regardless of the arm that they were originally in, their initial treatment, we're finding these alarming uh, complications. Interesting. Are there other medications... That, a, that children can take instead of metformin? Yes, and those um, uh, uh, there are a couple that are FDA-approved for children. Many of the adult medications are not. We're actually doing another clinical trial right now looking at a couple of drugs that are approved for use in adults, not yet approved in children. Oh. So we have a different study going on now with a different cohort of youth um, looking at that. All right. Um, now, you, there's a, another study that you published where you looked at continuous glucose monitoring profiles in healthy non-diabetic non participants. What was that all yes. about? So um, one of the biggest breakthroughs in, in diabetes care, particularly for people with type 1 diabetes, both children and adults, and that's the type of diabetes where you must take insulin. Your pancreas doesn't make insulin anymore, and without insulin, you cannot survive. That's the type um, 1. That's type 1. Um, uh, until recent years, people would do finger sticks, um, prick their finger, get a drop of blood, put the blood on a strip, and read their blood sugar in a meter. Um, and that tells you what your blood sugar is at a specific point in time, which is important information, um, but more information is better. So for example, you, if you get a number, you don't know if your blood sugar is going up, is it going down, is it steady, how fast is it moving, um, so, and you don't know what has happened in between two blood sugar checks. So let's say you check before breakfast and before lunch, did it go up in the middle, did it go down in the middle, you know, so that uh, there's a lot of information that's missing, no fault of the individual with diabetes, it just is. So some new technologies um, are called CGM, or continuous glucose monitoring, where you wear a sensor, which is a, a small patch, basically. The a fine filament goes just under the skin, and it senses your blood glucose readings every five minutes and sends those results to a receiver wirelessly that you can hold or to your smartphone or other smart device. Um, and you can see every five minutes what your blood sugars are doing, and it can alarm if you go too high or too low. Wow. Um, and you can have a family member or a caretaker or a friend also be monitoring your blood sugar. So it gives you a lot more information so you can make better decisions. Oh, should I eat something? Should I take more insulin? So um, it's been wonderful technology. So we have published a number of papers using that technology in people with diabetes in various age groups. Um, and it was important, actually, to test people without diabetes to know what's really normal. Oh, for because a comparison. That had, right, because, for comparison, because 
that hadn't been done with these uh, new devices. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Ruth Weinstock, the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate. Can you talk about a study that compared insulin delivery by insulin patch and insulin pen? That was another one that, we, that you were involved in, correct? Yes. Yeah, so um, we're always looking at devices that will make it more convenient for people with diabetes to take their insulin. And um, uh, the patch devices are very nice. You fill them with insulin, and you can place them on your abdomen or um, elsewhere in the body. So um, for, for people who, particularly for people who have to take insulin with every meal, um, this way, they don't have to carry around extra insulin. It makes it more convenient. Say you're in a restaurant, you want to dose, you just press a button through your clothes, and you can oh. and you can dose the insulin. So, if you make it easier for people to take insulin when they're supposed to take it, then um, it, it better compliance. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I know you've also looked into um, type one diabetes and longevity. So we have looked at older adults with type 1 diabetes. So fortunately, we have gotten much better at treating type 1 diabetes. So now um, it's not uncommon for people to live a long life with type 1 diabetes. I have patients who've had type 1 diabetes for 50, 60, 75 years. In fact, the oldest one um, uh, uh, patient I had with type 1, it had for over 80 years. Wow. Now, what because... Um, uh, years ago, we were not as good at taking care of type 1 diabetes. Honestly, people didn't live that long. But now we're very happy that people are living longer and, and with good quality of life. So we decided to study what's different about these individuals because just taking care of them and following them for so many years, um, it, it struck me that they seem to be more sensitive to insulin. And when we gave them continuous glucose monitoring devices to wear, we found that they had a lot of hypoglycemia, blood sugars going way too low, which is dangerous. It's dangerous for your brain, for your heart, for other organs. Um, you can get confused. You can even have a seizure and pass out. And many of them had no idea that their blood sugars were going that low. Um, and this was a very important study for a number of reasons. First of all, it showed that as people age with type 1 diabetes, they lose the symptoms of hypoglycemia of, of very low blood sugars. So they need help in detecting it. So they wouldn't it's know It's not their happening. fault. It, no. it, it's part of, of the natural history of the disease. And also, we had to convince Medicare that it was important uh, for older adults to be able to have this technology for them to pay for it, which um, fortunately, these studies did help convince some of that. But we are continuing with the studies, looking at how best to adapt technologies to uh, older people, including those who may have mild cognitive impairment. Interesting. Well, where do you see research heading in the field of diabetes care in terms of what's missing that we still need? So, of course, the cure is missing. Um, right. But um, it's been a very rewarding journey for me because now we're testing in some new clinical trials a hybrid artificial pancreas, and hopefully in the near future, a true artificial pancreas. So what that means is um, what the goal would be a really good treatment for type 1 diabetes so that the patients never go too high or too low. Um, so they can wear an insulin pump, a, a device that gives them just the right amount of insulin to keep their blood sugars normal, a continuous glucose monitor that tells 
the pump every few minutes, what the blood sugars are and what direction they're going so the pump can change the infusion rate of insulin and always keep their blood sugars at a good, healthy range. This so, would be duplicating what the pancreas does. So it would be, yes, and, uh, and ultimately not just have insulin in this artificial pancreas, but also have some other hormones that are important in glucose regulation. Insulin's the most important, but there are other hormones that are important as well. And I see that happening within the next few years. So that, that field is moving very, very quickly, and that's very, very rewarding. So that will definitely be a better treatment for type 1 diabetes, but it won't be a cure. The cure um, uh, will have to come in a different way, um, perhaps islet cell transplants um, uh, and other gene therapies. It, it's a little uh, difficult to predict what will get there first, but if one could give individuals islets that uh, were not recognized as foreign, uh, were not destroyed by the body and could just produce all the hormones that need to be produced in just the right amount, then that would be a cure. The other thing we're working on is prevention of type 1 diabetes. Um, we're involved in a group called TrialNet, uh, which is an international group um, funded primarily by National Institutes of Health, but other funders as well, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, American Diabetes Association. And that's looking at ways to trick the immune system so that your insulin-producing cells never get destroyed you can predict who is about to develop type 1 diabetes and stop the process, so it would wow. be a prevention. And then the last thing, of course, is type 2 diabetes, and there are some very interesting new hormones and um, new approaches for drug therapy that I think can, will do a better job than what we have now. Now, if any listeners, because I know the Jocelyn Diabetes Center um, is involved in a lot of clinical trials, so if there's any mm-hmm. listeners interested in that, Tell us why it might be of benefit for someone to get involved in a clinical trial. Well, um, first of all, we, we value our volunteers so, so much because without actually testing um, these new approaches in people, we'll never know if they work and they'll never come to market. Um, so this is the best way to um, advance the field forward. Um, and, of course, you're always a volunteer, so you could always um, withdraw from the project at any time if, if you so desire. Uh, it does give people the opportunity to get new treatments before they're available otherwise, before they're commercially available, before the FDA approves them. So we've had people on continuous glucose monitoring devices, insulin pumps, and um, new insulins and other medications uh, before they were actually approved by the FDA. And when they're in a trial, they also get all of this for free. So they get the devices for free. They get the drugs that we're testing for free. Um, and that, for many people, is a huge benefit because, um, particularly right now, uh, um, the health insurance um, uh, situation uh, is um, very problematic for people with diabetes. Insulin costs have just skyrocketed. It's, it's terrible how high the insulin costs have uh, become, and so some people can't afford to take enough insulin. So this is a way to get um, medications also um, Uh, free of charge, which is helpful. Well, let me share the phone number for people that are interested at 315-464-9008, and that goes to the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in the research area. Um, People will also be able to find a link to that webpage at uh, healthlinkonair.org, where this interview will be archived. My guest has been Dr. Ruth Weinstock, the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate. 
I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.